Well, good morning. I have to admit there's something kind of encouraging, uh, even though I'm preaching to an empty room right now, uh, knowing that as believers, we still get to open up the word together, even if we can't be in the same room with one another, uh, that we can still be studying the same unchangeable word of God, and I'm really grateful for that this morning. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and go to Hebrews chapter 6. I'm going to read through verses 9 through 20. That's our text for today. And uh, then we're just going to pray and then dive right on in. Let's do that. Hebrews 6, verses, uh, actually verse 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, again today, even in different homes, different places, we are gathered around your same word. And so, God, I pray this morning that you would open up our hearts, uh, that you would do a special work with us, Lord, Uh, maybe one that's uh, more unique than is typical for us. Um, Help for the saints who are uh, seated on couches and chairs uh, um, all around uh, the valley, and maybe even farther than that, Lord, uh, to feel a kind of unity with one another because of our shared love for and trust in your word uh, today. God, I pray that you would speak to us through Hebrews chapter 6, lift up our hearts, encourage us with the words that should be an encouragement to us, admonish us with the words that should be an admonition, and Lord, help us to think rightly about all the things going on around us in light of what we know to be true in your word. Lord, we love you, we thank you for this, and pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, We covered verses 11 and 12. I just did a short couple of verses and and pulled some things out that I thought would be helpful for you based upon what it seemed like the text was making clear. And I shared then that diligence leads to full assurance, which is the antidote to sluggishness. That section, the previous section we've been reading through, was a big caution and a warning to believers to not be dull of hearing as the Hebrew audience originally was. That sluggishness can be worked out of us, can be solved by the diligence that leads to full assurance, and that is the antidote to sluggishness. So to say it in reverse, if you are not zealous, if you are showing no effort to honor God, you cannot have genuine assurance. And that leads to sluggishness. That leads to dullness of hearing. Now in verse 12, where we had just left off before we get to our passage today, the author just told us to imitate other faithful believers. And now he's about to give us an example of one who is commended for his faith and patience. And that brings us to our text today. Verse 13. 
For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Here he draws on the character in the Old Testament, Abraham. He's using Abraham as a prime example of a believer who is faithful and patient, one who is worth imitating. For when God made a promise to Abraham, and then he he just kind of goes on from there into other things. See, the author expects his audience to know this story. He can just say the promise to Abraham and then move on because he knows that the people, the Hebrews, hearing his, his fir- the sermon being written down, will know that he's talking about that promise that would have been in their minds, especially so as Hebrews who trace their bloodline back to Abraham. The only commentary that the author even supplies here is to unpack the phrase, he swore by himself. That's what he actually unpacks here. But the rest of it is, you know, the promise. So let's just refamiliarize ourselves with the promise that's been made. Make sure we understand and see the story he's pointing to. I'm actually going to quickly turn to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22. And I'm just going to read 18 verses. I'm going to read them kind of quickly here with, with, with minimal commentary, if any. You need to know now, God has previously called Abram, who he has named Abraham by the time we get to, to this, passage, this passage in 22. And he's promised to make him into a great nation. Now he did this back 10 chapters earlier in Genesis 12. That's when he first gives this calling and promise to Abraham. And that's the promise that is to make him into a great nation, multiply the offspring coming after him, give him a land and uh, all of this beautiful uh, growth kind of language being promised to him. Now this was restated multiple times already by this point, by the time we get to Genesis 22. It was restated in chapters 13, 15, 17, 18, 21. Uh, Different iterations of the same promise said over and over and over again. And there's been maybe a couple of decades taking place, at least 15 years between 22 and, uh, excuse me, between chapter 12 and chapter 22. So Abram has been hearing these promises for quite some time. But it's not until we get to this passage that something gets added to that promise. That God grabs that promise and does something significant with it to make it even more certain in the minds of the hearers of the story. Let's read 22 verses 1 through 18. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, 
God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abram took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. What had been a promise up until this point, God now makes an oath. Look at that verse again, verses 16 and 17. And he said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Now, why did he swear by himself? Well, the text tells us in Hebrews here, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. You know, living in Utah especially, we know that we're surrounded by people in this culture who believe that all the passages in the Old Testament especially that say that there's only one God are referring just to this earth. But there are verses all over both the Old and the New Testaments that make it clear that there is no one higher than God. God does not have a father or a grandfather. God does not have any other higher force, higher power, higher person than himself. This is why this text can say he had no one greater by whom to swear. He is the highest. It goes on in verse 15, back to Hebrews 6 here. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. He patiently waited. Now remember, this is drawing on what was already said in in verse 12, which encouraged us to imitate people like Abraham, who through faith and patience inherited the promises. So now in verse 15, we're being told that through his patience, he inherited the promise. We should be like him. We should imitate someone like him in his faithfulness and his patience. Now, the patience of Abraham being referred to here is probably referring to his persistent trust in God over the course of his life. Remember, Abraham received the promise that he would have a child even though he was in his old age and his wife was, was, was also beyond childbearing years and God, through a miracle, provided his son Isaac. And while Abraham wasn't perfect in his faithfulness, he did persevere. Abraham's faithfulness was a persevering kind. Remember, genuine faith 
Genuine receptiveness is lasting and fruitful. It doesn't have to be perfect, but it will last. And after having waited patiently, he obtained the promise. Now we know that Abraham, of course, did not live to see Jesus. He died much, much uh, before then. And later in the book of Hebrews, Abraham will be listed as one of the Old Testament people who, although having faith, did not receive what was promised because the ultimate promise was in the ultimate offspring, the Messiah, Jesus. So in what way did Abraham here obtain the promise? How can it say that he, through patience, obtained the promise? Well, I think quite simply because he got his son back. The restoration of Isaac was confirmation that the rest of the promise was certainly going to come true. The whole Bible uses language like this. We kind of refer to it sometimes as the already not yet realities of the Bible. Uh, Things like, as we as believers, we already have salvation and yet not yet. Uh, Jesus' kingdom has already been established on this earth and not quite yet. The Bible uses this kind of terminology all the time. He goes on in verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. People swear by something. And they swear by something greater than themselves. That's what this Heather, the Hebrews author just kind of says in a matter-of-fact way. Now, it was common legal practice in the ancient world for people to make oaths. They might make an oath in the name of the emperor or in the name of their country, their beloved nation, or even a beloved city. This would be a way to bind themselves under the accountability of the name in whom they swore. In fact, the Old Testament tells the Jewish people that it is only by the name of the Lord that they should swear at all. Deuteronomy 6.13 says this, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. In other words, The Old Testament people were commanded that they are to not acknowledge any of the false gods of the nations in making oaths. They were to acknowledge God alone. Confirmation here is a legal guarantee. It it was to bind somebody to their words. Oaths were a big deal to people. And honestly, it's kind of interesting that they were really not today, and perhaps they should be considered that way. Our words should matter. A person would put his life on the line with an oath in ancient times. In fact, this is why animals were often slain or sacrificed during an oath-giving ceremony as a sort of symbolism to say that this is what should happen to me if I don't keep my promise. By Jesus' day, this swearing, this oath-making had gotten out of hand. So much so that he prohibited his disciples from taking these kind of oaths at all. People were not realizing the seriousness of these oaths. Look what he says in Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your own head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes 
or know anything more than this comes from evil. I want you to notice for a moment, Jesus' reasoning for why a person should not make an oath. It's because they can't guarantee that they will keep that oath. They don't have control. He's talking here in Matthew chapter 5 of people making oaths to God, promising God they're going to bring something to pass. They have no genuine control to make it come to pass. I want you to pause and think about this for a moment. This might be very timely for us in the quarantine, the restrictions of our homes, everybody trying to avoid and get around, get away from the COVID-19 coronavirus. You and I are not in control. We are not in control. And this whole passage is highlighting God's sovereignty, his ability to do whatever he wills. But in order for that to have the desired effect, in order for a text like this to really sink in and be meaningful for us, we we must not only acknowledge God is in control, we must also acknowledge that we are not in control. If he is, we are not. When you buy a house, you have to promise to make a certain payment, typically monthly. You promise to pay a certain amount. Now, do you know for certain that you'll be able to pay that amount? Of course not. There are a thousand scenarios that you or I could think of right now of reasons why a person might buy a house and then later not be able to pay for it. There are a thousand possibilities of things that could go down. When we say we're going to do something, and yet at the end of the day, we may not be able to. We have to, in every sphere of life, acknowledge that at the end of the day, we don't have control. Can you keep yourself from getting the coronavirus? No. If the Lord wills, you will get the coronavirus. Or, if the Lord wills, you will not get the coronavirus. This is a wonderful truth. This is wonderful. This is something to rest in. This is a reason to sleep sound with a smile in peace. If the Lord wills. Christians shelter in place differently than non-Christians. Christians stock up on supplies differently than non-Christians. Christians deal with earthquakes and job loss and pandemics differently than non-Christians. You and I know that God is in control. You and I know that no matter how much you stock up, that could be gone in an instant. Or you could die from something else. God alone is in control. Now, should this make you afraid? Well, in one one sense, no, because God has your great joy in mind. Romans 8.28 says, and we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is awesome. God means good for you and for me. And even if we can't understand it and can't see it, we don't quite have all the pieces figured out. How could this be good? He does have good in mind for us. So if he's the one who's holding all the cards, 
if he's the one who truly could bring calamity on your family tomorrow or great blessing on your family tomorrow, should you fear God? Absolutely you should. This is, this is fearing God that the whole Bible commands us to do. Don't fear man. Fear God who can do much more than just kill you. That's the worst a man can do for you. Even Jesus commands us to fear God. If you do, if you fear God, you are well on your way to wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Thinking about our situation today, I've been thinking a lot about this recently. I think that it is appropriate for governing authorities to try to make well-informed decisions to attempt to deal with times of emergency and crisis. But the government has no more control over these viruses than you and I. Maybe less. I've been amazed recently as I've been watching news reports at how many people in our country are literally crying out to our government to bring restrictions on themselves to give away their freedoms, more so than I've ever observed in my life. Why are people doing that? Because when people get afraid, they cry out to their God. And to the people who do not have a true God, they cry out to a false one. It doesn't mean that government is inherently bad. God has blessed us with government and in our country blessed us with a government that in many, many ways has good in mind for us. And for that, we should be grateful. But government is not God. We know that we cannot rely on government to solve crises like these as though they have power to control viruses. And we don't have to because we already have a God. Now, if you're prone, maybe be on the other side of that, not so much crying out for the government to control more, but if you're, if you're prone on the other side, at times like these, for, you, for your distrust in governing authorities to be heightened, well, then I want to encourage you with this. Consider, even the most far-fetched conspiracy could not be possible unless God ordained for it to come to pass. Even the things that you might fear the world is doing in order to make this situation worse, even those things have passed through God's permission, have been ordained of him before you were even born. God is in control. This is why Christians deal even with actual conspiracies coming to play differently than the world because he is in control of all things. He is the only one who is ultimately sovereign. So how is it then that God would make an oath? Jesus says to not make an oath. How, how should God make an oath? Because God alone can be trusted to bring that to pass. God alone can make certain that his oath will be fulfilled. You and I can't. That's why we shouldn't make them. But God can because everything that he says is true. Look what it says here in verse 17 and 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. 
so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, who who are these heirs of the promise? This is us. This is Christians today. This is believers from the Old Testament until now and long after you and I are gone. This is believers. God did something in Abraham's life and he inspired Moses to write it down and now he inspires the author of Hebrews to repeat that for our good. Application Read your Bible. These stories are here to benefit us. It already happened to Abraham. He he gained the benefit that he was supposed to gain right then and there in the experience of this taking place. Isaac experienced it, gained that benefit there. It's written down for us. It's written down that we would benefit. If you're not taking advantage of your time away from a lot of the work responsibilities that you have, more at home than typical. If you're not taking advantage of this time to get in the word, please correct that. Please do so. It's for your good. God intends to use the Bible to sharpen you, help you. And what is he desiring to show more convincingly? The unchangeable character of his purpose. Notice that it is not saying the unchangeable character of God. We, we know that, that is true. God's nature is unchanging. His character is an unchangeable character. We know that to be true elsewhere. We can find lots of verses that point to those beautiful realities. But here, that unchangeableness in God extends to God's purpose in his plan of redemption. So, Are you wondering what that two unchangeable things is referring to? What are the two unchangeable things at the beginning of verse 18? So that by two unchangeable things, the two unchangeable things have already been mentioned in that verse prior. The promise and the oath. The promise and the oath. They shouldn't be conflated. Those are two different things. God had already made a promise to Abraham. Remember, he did this back in Genesis 12. And then years later, he secured that even more completely by swearing by himself. So he already given the promise and now he adds the oath. Those two things. He started with that promise and it was good enough. That's why he inserts that line, it is impossible for God to lie. Because he's reminding us, listen, that was enough. It's not as though that's not quite going to cut it. We need something more, God, just to make sure that this will stand, stand true, stand firm. That was sufficient. Nothing more was needed than God's word. He is a God of his word. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Will he, has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? When God makes a promise, you can take it to the bank. But just to further convince us, to show more convincingly, to use the words here, that he would bring about his plan of redemption, he doubles down on the promise by adding an oath. He goes on, we have this as a sure and steady, sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
sure and steady anchor. We have this. This is something that we now retain. We have this, and it is our sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Very poetic language. What is it? It is a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Our hope is a person. Our hope is Jesus. God's promise in Jesus is unchangeable and is irrevocable. He is our steadfast anchor. You and I have great hope all the time, not just in these COVID times. All the time we have a great hope that the world does not have. We have a Savior who loved us so much that he entered into our mess, lived perfectly, and then died on behalf of us for our sins to bear our punishments, the wrath of God. This is our hope. Our hope is in the final, complete, finished work of Jesus. And that hope becomes real for us by belief. You can't you know, hope in the same way for things that you don't believe in. This kind of hope is a hope that is a certainty. Being sure, being sure. Jesus is that hope. And apart from him, there is no hope. You know, the author of Hebrews, before he even got to this passage, has already shown us an oath that God had made. And this one was in the negative context. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 11, he cites Psalm 95, where God says, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You might remember that was talking about the Israelites. Because of their rebellion against God in the wilderness, he did not permit them to enter the promised land. He swore in his wrath. God swore they shall not enter his rest. Did they? Nope. They did not because he swore it and it came ex true exactly as he had said. But the author's about to, to, to cite another place in the Old Testament where God swore that something will be true. And we can have the same level of confidence that that will be certain as we can about the fact that the Israelites did not enter the promised land in that generation. Psalm 110.4 says this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's going to come around in chapter 7. He's talking to Jesus. You are a priest forever. God has sworn that Jesus will forever be our great high priest. His oath is sure. The point of verses 13 through 20, this passage, the point here, is to show us that the promise of Jesus being made our great high priest is certain, it is permanent, it is not changeable. In the face of all the uncertainty in your life, maybe even more so now than at other times, you can take that truth to the bank. I want to close with Isaiah 45, verses 22 through 23. Listen to this oath language, God swearing by himself. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from the mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Let's pray. Father, today I pray that these words would be a comfort to all of us, as I believe they're intended to be, that we would realize that what you say will come to pass. 
that you are a God who does make promises and you, you show you the certainty of those promises in the way that you give them to us, in the way that you, you even make oaths, that you, you bind yourselves, your, yourself to the promise by appealing to your own unchangeable character. Father, I pray that we would see that and we would have such a certainty. We would have such an assurance, a full assurance as the author wants and desires for us and believes to be true about his audience. Father, I pray that this would be something that would would lift us up right now, that it would give us a kind of a wind in our sails to carry us through this next week. And Lord, help us to share that hope that we have in Jesus with all of those around us who do not yet have it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.